Amen. Well, good morning to you again. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to make it easy on you this morning. Genesis 1-1. So if, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that is the first book and the first verse. So easy enough, go past the table of contents. And we're going to begin there. So we're going to get to Ephesians uh, in just a bit, but we need to do some work in order for us to be able to get there. And so this morning, we're going to, we're going to continue through God's Word in our, by our look into the specific and beautiful design that we've been talking about. And we're going to be talking specifically this morning about the beautiful design that God created when he spoke things into existence. And over the past few weeks, I have shared with you that from our imitation of Christ that we began with in the beginning of chapter 5, from our imitation of Christ, because we are his dearly beloved children, so we follow like the ways of our Father, this affects our perspective on life. And this, this affects our perspective on some topics that we have talked about specifically on sex, the culture that we walk in, we looked last week about how we walk as light in a dark place. So this affects our perspective on sex, the culture we walk in as dearly beloved children. Uh, the, and then, we, then how we will walk, we'll see this morning, how we are designed to walk in marriage. So this morning, we're going to talk specifically about marriage. Paul wants to see the, us to see this morning as he led the church in Ephesus. He wants, us to, to, he wants to lead us through this truth that the same God, the same God who created the design for creation, created man and woman with a design for how they would relate to each other, specifically in the context of biblical marriage. The world we live in has painted a picture of marriage that I feel in many ways has given us a poor definition of what it actually looks like. In the movies, if that's what you have to base marriage off of, bless you. And in the movies, if you get married, magical things happen. You no longer work. You picnic every day. And at the end of the day, you end each day with a slow dance underneath a moonlit sky. Your activities include staring into each other's eyes for hours and snuggling. And then you get married. <laughs> and then you get married and you find out that some days you work overtime. And then you come home and, from work and you eat on the couch at 9 o'clock. After you've finally gotten the kids to bed. And the only dancing you have the energy for is the dance to bed to recharge for a new day. Not to discourage you singles. You're thinking that sounds miserable. <laughs> I like the other version better. But yet in the middle of all of that, there is this incredible amount of joy and happiness. That when lived out in the biblical framework that God has for marriage is an incredible and unbelievable thing. In the Hebrew culture, they would actually describe this with a word called the ahaba, which was kind of their, they basically kind of saw love develop in three steps. It was uh, the middle being this ahaba. And that term would actually mean to them that there's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now, and I'm not going anywhere. And it would not carry the context of everything is bubbly and we're, we're, we're just, you know, having this big romantic moment. It would be a word they would use to kind of describe like in the middle of mass chaos when life is absolutely crazy. The Ahaba would be the type of love that would describe that even in the midst of all this chaos and madness, there's no place I'd rather be than with you right here, right now. I'm not going anywhere. But culture has attempted and is attempting to define marriage for us, not only through misperceptions, but in it from a very unbiblical place. We live in a place in time where never before have we seen such diversity of viewpoints on the design of man and woman in marriage. 
And what I hope to show you this morning concerning what biblical marriage looks like is that the redefining of gender in marriage is actually an attack on the biblical design of creation by the creator. So in a world that has experienced such confusion on the design of marriage, how do we then as believers, followers of Jesus, how do we enter into this context and offer clear thinking on it? And so the basis for our discussion this morning is grounded in scripture that was given to us long before Paul would write the letter to the church at Ephesus. It drives everything that we know to be true about the design of God that we have processed through over the last few weeks. So the roles that we will look at today from Ephesians for how a man and a woman in marriage should live, they're rooted in our belief and our acknowledgement of who we believe God to be. And so this morning, I want to begin with the first verse of God's word and show how this has major implications for how we perceive and believe and practice marriage, biblical marriage. And in Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So before we dive into the most popular teaching from Ephesians 5 that you have heard preached and read at every Christian wedding you have been to, we have to start our understanding of the biblical framework and design for marriage with these three words, in the beginning. You and I have a limited Ability to rationally think outside the parameters of time. Everything we think through and plan on, even the course of our day, is centered around the idea of time. What time do you want to have dinner? What time do the kids need to get up? What time do they need to go to bed? What time does the movie start? When is the ball game? You know, when were you born? When are you going to graduate from college? You know, seven years. That's great. You know how. How old are your, are your children? Everything that we can clearly wrap our minds around is measured with a finite amount of time. So the first three words of the beginning of the Bible let us get a glimpse into the unlimited, infinite nature of God and the limited ability of creation. Because these three words, in the beginning means that there was something before there was time. So if there was a beginning, then we see that in the beginning before time, there was God. So follow with me. So, so, so now we have an eternal creator. We have an infinite, powerful God whose existence sits outside of time. He is the only one or thing that has no beginning. So in accordance to God's word, according to his word, everything Every person finds its beginning in the origin of God who has no beginning. And this infinite God we see from this first verse, this infinite God creates. So he is the catalyst by which everything finds its conception. So out of nothingness, he speaks into existence what verse 1 tells us, the first thing, the heavens. And so God is demonstrating his creative nature and power by creating the heavens, the expanse of the universe. Now follow with me. We have a tremendous amount of technology today to study the heavens. And even with this technology, there is an incapability to fully grasp the vastness of the universe. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on all the beaches on earth. It's estimated that at a, at a minimum, that is a billion trillion stars. And yet David in Psalm 147.4 says that God determines the number of stars and he gives to all of them their names. Simply unbelievable. We have the, the Hubble telescope and still can't grasp all this. And yet David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, you, God, you're naming all these stars. They're all part of your creation. You were before time and you spoke every one of them into existence. That is an ultimate display of power and design. So in the beginning, before time, God created the heavens. And then in the middle of one of the many galaxies in the universe, God creates this rock that we call earth. 
And on this small, insignificant place in the scheme of things, God chooses to play out the most incredible drama of the universe on this planet by placing the crown jewel of his creation on it, man and woman. So what does this have to do with anything involving marriage? I know you're thinking, he totally forgot what his sermon was on this morning. He's just now talking. Why is this important? Well, this is extremely important. Because if this is true about God, and if we truly believe him to be the absolute creator of the universe, who sits outside of the parameters of time, who has always been, then who are we because of the way that we feel or want to feel or what we want to be the reality of truth? Who are we to ever question the perfect design by which he ordered the universe? If we believe he is creator, and if God so carefully constructed the world to exist in such a delicate and carefully planned cosmos full of the wonder of nature, and if he built man and woman in a way that fits within this carefully crafted design, then you and I must see that we are not aimlessly floating through a, this, this life to do as we please, live as we please, but we are created with an ultimate plan and purpose and design that when lived out, it glorifies the Father in the midst of his creation. And we place our faith in this. The question is, is not how do I want to interpret and live? The question begins with if God is creator that sat outside of time and spoke into existence, this place that I live and put me in the middle of that context in life and said, this is the way you're going to do life. This is the way you're going to do marriage. Then who am I to question that? Who am I to believe Any, anything that I, that I think is an interpretation aside from what God created? And we see this as, as people of faith and we see it as people who are not of faith. Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists, I think he would also affirm this truth from the other side of things. In fact, he was once quoted as saying this in, 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 in determining that we as creation, we are distinct. When God made us, he made us different from everything else. He put a soul inside of us. He gave us the ability to place our faith in him. And Christopher Hitchens says this, that faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. And listen, it's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other animals. He's saying his rationale, his mind. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and put all of our trust or faith in someone or something that is the sinister thing to me. He said, out of all the virtues, all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. So he's saying the same thing from an atheist standpoint. He's like, I, I don't believe in this. How could I place my faith in something like that? Because that's the abandonment of the one thing that I have that sets me apart from creation, my mind. And yet we as believers, we look at that and we say, we see God as creator. He spoke all of this into existence. So I put all of my faith in that. And that what makes me distinct from creation is the fact that I have the ability to place my faith in him. And so we see that whether an atheist or a believer in God, we all recognize that we are different from the rest of creation. An atheist finds an explanation of the difference between man and creation in logic and thought, and a believer finds explanation in placing our faith in the creator and designer of all things. Now, if you affirm and believe that God is the creator and the designer of the universe, then you will naturally either, first of all, do exactly what he says, realizing that the loving, gracious, merciful creator does indeed have a design that is for our good and for his glory. So we just submit to that design. That's, if, if, you, if you're on the side where you say, yeah, I believe totally in God, I place my faith in him, I believe that what he says is true, I will live for him, then you will naturally Trust the loving, gracious, good father and you will live by his design. But we also find in, in, that followers of Christ will often attempt to affirm him as God and say, I trust him. I believe him to be the creator of all things. But yet we try and we to reinterpret his design and we try to bend his word to fit what we want to be true and not what actually has been clearly communicated as his perfect will for his creation. Are you following with me? So, we, so we're saying that as, if I have placed my faith in God, 
then there's like this little subgroup over here that we're saying I either all out in with what he says and I follow it because he's creator. He made everything. Who am I to question? So I'm going to follow his exact will. Or we say I see he's creator, but yet I think I want to reinterpret to fit my desires and wishes. I want to redesign his perfect plan. And in regards to his design for marriage, we see this happen. And in regards to his design for marriage, how do we uphold the beauty of creation in a world that seeks to redefine marriage between man and woman, to be defined by whatever you feel? We uphold it by living out the design from God's word for marriage. How do we uphold the beauty of creation in a world that seeks to redefine gender to where it is a choice instead of the perfectly planned desire that God has for your life? We do it by upholding gender differences, by seeing that we were created in the image of God and in that place we were fearfully and wonderfully made. We have equal value but specific roles. We realize that God doesn't make mistakes if... And I emphasize that two-letter word, if we believe that God is creator who sits outside of space and time, and if he created us perfectly, then his purpose for our life is accomplished by living out the life he designed us for. He doesn't create and leave us the space to decide what design and plan we want to live by because he made us. We read David's psalm. He says, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your, work, are your works. My soul knows it very well because my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, there was, when, when as yet there was none of them. Man, God's design is a beautiful, purposeful design. How do we uphold the beauty of creation in a world that seeks to redefine and compromise God's plan and design for sex uh, within marriage or outside of marriage? By, we do that by treating it, you know, when, that, when we look, for, look at it as sex in whatever we want to interpret that, then we treat it very casually instead of intentionally by design. We uphold the gift of sex and the design by which God created this gift to be enjoyed. In verse 26 of chapter 1, we read that God speaks into this original purpose and design for man and woman. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And look what God did in his design. He blessed them. And he says, this will be your purpose. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply image bearers. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that, me, that was made. And behold, he said it was for the first time we see this, it was very good. He made a perfect design for men and women in the context of marriage. And so in a world that desires to redefine marriage to accommodate the various lifestyles of the creation, we see from Genesis that the truth about companionship and marriage is not ultimately rooted in the, the emotion that we feel at all, but instead the creation of biblical covenant marriage lies in the creative nature of God. But yet the culture we live in that is creation attempts to exercise power over the creator and do life and companionship outside of the original design of the creator. So why is Genesis so important to our text this morning? It's important because our whole teaching and belief on marriage ultimately lies in our embracing of the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And if this is true, we believe and follow his exact design and order for God, of God, the creator. All of our questions concerning purpose and design find their origin in that statement, if it is indeed 
true. So in considering this theological truth that man and woman were created in the image of God and he has the power and authority to order and design creation because he is the only one that sits outside of creation, then this means for us as creation in regards to man and woman in marriage, we have to grasp some foundational truths this morning. So let me give you these and then we're gonna jump into Ephesians. First of all, as God's image bearers, men must view women through a biblical lens. Men must view women through a biblical lens. If we truly believe in God's design and we see each other as God's image bearers, then this completely changes the way we must as men view women. We no longer see women as sexual creatures or servants. As we will see this morning, men have a very specific role in relationships to serve our wives. So in a culture that attempts to train your thoughts and eyes to view women through a sexual, fantastical lens, we must see this morning that biblical creation shifts that way of thinking. You think biblically of women and you treasure them as sisters and co-heirs, daughters of the king, and glorious not disrespecting them intellectually or robbing them of the beauty of living out their gifts in God's beautiful design for their lives. And ladies, especially single ladies, because you are image bearers of God and because the Imago Dei communicates this intrinsic value God has for yourself, you must not treat yourself cheaply. You must have high expectations for how men should approach you, high expectations for how they should honor you. You have to understand the value that you have before God at such a depth that you will quickly reject guys who seek sexual company and casual contact, but who will not honor your soul. We have to view differently. Secondly, as God's image bears, women must view men through a biblical lens. Ladies, men make terrible idols. Terrible. If you're holding out for that perfect guy who will meet your every need and satisfy the longings of your soul, that is not consistent with God's design. Only God can satisfy. And yet you so quickly place that unrealistic expectation on men that it's just not possible for them to fulfill. You're setting them up for failure. The world wants to paint, the world wants to paint a different picture for you. The world wants you to believe that a man can complete you can fill that void in your heart. But that is just untrue. You can ask the married women in the room and they will amen that statement. We have great couples in this church to model your marriage after, but none will say that everything is perfect. When you grasp that God created you for his glory and your identity is not found in a guy but in Christ, then you will not demand from your spouse something that is impossible for him to give. So as God's image bears, women have to view men through a biblical lens. And then the third foundation, as God's image bears, men and women must view marriage through a biblical lens. So men view women through a biblical lens, women through men view men through a biblical lens, and then men and women must view marriage through a biblical lens. If all we have said so far about God is true, then marriage is not an institution left to interpretation. But instead, it is clearly and designated and designed by God, and we will see this morning, that when it is clearly lived out, it speaks to the world the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you hear nothing else this morning but this, please hear this. Marriage in this life exists more for God than it does for you. Marriage exists more for God than it does for you. Because marriage in this life is a shadow. We're gonna see this this morning. Marriage in this life is a shadow of the ultimate marriage of Christ with his bride, the church. And so with that as, as kind of a foundation, I hadn't even started the sermon yet. We better get going. Uh, not really, it's, it's, it's not that long. So with that as our backdrop, let's go to our text in Ephesians 
And let's look through this biblical lens of a creator who designed his creation perfectly. And then through this lens of we see men and women and marriage through the lens of the, of, of the Bible. Let's see then how God, if you are believing, if you believe in God and you trust him, we don't come to him as savior, not as Lord. He is Lord over our life. And if he is Lord over our life and he has given us instruction on marriage, then we read this morning to see how God has perfectly made marriage to be enjoyed in the context in which he made it. So let's read beginning with verse 18 and see that this teaching on marriage is preceded by one long sentence in Greek that commands us ultimately to be filled with the Spirit. So look at this beginning with verse 18. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but instead we are to be filled with the Spirit. That's very important. So continuation of the sentence. We are to dress one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So see, before we even get into this passage on, on husbands and wives' roles, we are seeing that ultimately we're filled with the Spirit and we're submitting to one another out of a general reverence for Christ. Now follow with me then. So wives, based in that context, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul teaches us that being filled and directed by the Holy Spirit will have a holistic influence on us as his followers. And we will see for the next several weeks that this will impact us as husbands and wives, as parents and children, and as slaves and masters. That this theme of the influence of the Spirit submitting to one another in Christ will will, will thematically influence all three of the areas that we will look at over the next few weeks. So this imperative in verse 18, that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit and we will live our lives, even in the context of marriage, by the Spirit. Now, Paul does not give us an inclusive, an all-inclusive teaching on marriage uh, here in Ephesians, but I think he does clearly identify for us what are the key responsibilities that husband and wives should have in these roles, and they show us a picture of Christ. So we established in the beginning that God carries the authority to design marriage because he is creator, sits outside of the space and time, but we also know that God is good. He designs marriage and, and creation in general to be for our good and for his glory. So this morning, let's dive in and look at the roles from this passage. Now, if you are not married, don't check out. There is no better time to define, one, what you're looking for in a husband and what your role for a, you being a wife or vice versa. There's no better time to define that than before you enter into that covenant marriage. No better time. So follow along, take notes, maybe as much as anybody in this room today. So first of all, let's look at the role that is defined here of a spirit-filled wife. Verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its 
Savior. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So Paul begins by saying, wives, you should, you should submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now the word submit is a tough word for us to dig into this morning if we consider it in a worldly interpretation. The world considers the word submit and interpret that as the man's ability to come home and say, this is what we're doing, woman, and make me a sandwich while we do it. (laughs) This word carries with it a derogatory interpretation, meaning that women are inferior to men. And that's not at all what is being taught here. You know, we live in a place in the Western world that speaks in this age of liberation. So the idea of submission sounds like oppression, abuse, dominance. It sounds primitive, like, you know, little house on the prairie, kind of pioneer living. But Jesus blows that thought out of the water that his concept would ever be that women were inferior to men. In fact, I think about the woman at the well as Jesus approached her in the middle of the day, and this would have been totally uh, a, a cultural you know, anomaly. Jesus should not have been doing that, nor should he have ever drank out of the water jug of, a, of, a, of an unpure woman. But yet, Jesus completely is counterculture, and he blows that idea out of the water. So the nature of Jesus in calling for submission by women has nothing to do with being second-rate or being dominated by a man. Now, sinful men at times have the tendency to pervert the true meaning of submission and treat it like, like they have the license to order their wives around. But this is just totally not the case. So in a culture that says we should just disregard this outdated text, this is primitive, we can't just throw it out. It's part of God's design. So God does not give us that right. So we have to attempt to understand it. So what does this mean scripturally? What is God meaning here by saying that as wives, you should submit to your husband? The role of a wife is not an inferior role, but a complementary role. We see this in chapter two of Genesis, and we won't go back there, but we see that woman was created to be a helper to man, to partner with him in the work that God had given him. So to to best maybe answer the question of what submission is, it is best to answer it by maybe saying, what does it not mean? Let's start with that. First of all, submission does not suggest spiritual inequality. It does not suggest spiritual inequality. It's important to note here that when we describe submission, this role is not outside of the image, the imago Dei we have already established. This is not an idea that men are superior to women. This is completely grounded in the truth that we are created equally, yet we have distinct roles. Wives are instructed in God's word to submit to their husbands, not Women submit to men. Do you see that? That's totally drastically different implications between the two. This is not women submit to men. This is a wife submitting to her husband. Some have even said that maybe an even more accurate way of looking at marital roles is actually to understand that wives are called to follow their husband's loving leadership. John Stott says it like this. The wife's submission is but another aspect of love. He says, what does it mean to submit? It means to give oneself up to somebody. He said, what does it mean to love? He said, it means to give oneself up to somebody. That the role of a man and woman is is both to serve and to offer themselves for their partner. So first of all, we see that submission does not suggest spiritual uh, inequality. And secondly, wifely submission does not mean slavish obedience. The key phrase in this passage is, as to the Lord. Why does this design for marriage work the way that it does? Because it is unto the Lord and is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And the wife submits to the husband's leadership because she wants to glorify Christ in his design. The wife lives out this role in marriage in order to glorify the father and live her life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. So submission here then involves lovingly following the servant leadership of the husband. Now when we consider this role, I want to encourage you ladies 
to follow the biblical description of your role in marriage, not the cultural interpretation of the wife's role in marriage. Your husband needs to be allowed to lead. It's his design. It's God's design for him. It's tough for a husband to lead if the wife has completely dominated him and is living out that role instead. Some of you may say, well, he just won't lead. Are you giving him the space and the encouragement to do this? You know, ladies, in the context of a biblical marriage, you can't just laugh it off as I'm strong-willed or I just have a strong personality. If you are leading and directing your husband, that is outside of the design that God has for marriage. Now, now you may say, you don't know what I have to work with here. He is a pathetic idiot. And you may be true, but he's your pathetic idiot, okay? You're in marriage with him. You covenanted with him. We don't do arranged marriage. You signed up. (laughs) And so your role as the wife in the way God designed marriage is to love and support him as the spiritual leader of your family. So you submit, and the second thing that we see that you do here is you respect your husband. You respect him. Verse 33 tells us that, that the wife is to respect the husband. This word carries with it almost like a respect, like a, like a fear. Not like I'm afraid of my husband, but a fear like I, I understand and I respect him because of this unbelievable task that God has given him. Ladies, do you realize that one day your husband will stand before God and will give an account for how he led you and your family? He needs to have your respect in that, that you respect him in his assignment from God. Now, this plays itself out on a very practical level as well. The wife should see the responsibility that the husband has and the weight of this and respect him in this role. So so this passage, Paul begins by saying that this is what submission looks like through the lens of the, of the Bible. So then we see what is the role of a spirit-filled husband because he spends the remaining time, beginning with verse 25, interpreting what it's to look like for this husband who is being looked to for leadership and whose wife is submitting to his leadership. So much like the role that women have in regards to their husband, men also have been given a God-given duty and role in regards to marriage and the treatment of our wives. Men, we are not better than women. And we do not have any authority or power outside the authority that God has given us to spiritually lead the family well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, the dignity that is here described to the man lies not in any capabilities or qualities of his own, but in the office conferred on him. Check that out. The office conferred on him by his marriage. The wife should see her husband clothed in this dignity. But for him, it is he who is responsible for his wife, for their marriage, and for their home. On him falls the care and protection of the family. He represents it to the outside world. So God has so carefully designed man to have a central role in the flourishing of the family. In Psalm 28, it says that if a man, David writes, that if a man walks in the fear of the Lord, walking in his ways, he would be blessed. It'll go well with him. And it says his wife, his wife will flourish like a fruitful vine. So men, our role in leading will allow our wives to flourish in the giftedness that she has from the Father. So men, part of our God-given design is to lead our wives well so that they grow and flourish in their faith. So men, God gives us several roles from this text that we must follow. The first is sacrificial love towards the wife. It says that we are to love her as Christ loved the church. That's heavy. The idea of love that the world wants us to strive towards is a very self-serving kind of love. And Paul tells men that if we're going to be influenced by the Spirit, live by the influence of the Spirit, then this will involve us sacrificing for the sake of our wife after the model of Christ who sacrificed all for the sake of the church. 
Man, this is a call to die. This is a call to die, just as much as it is a calling to die to follow Christ. If you look at the life of Christ, he loved his church by giving everything for her. And now we're instructed to love our wives that way. So what does this look like? Dying to self in the name of love and and for the sake of our family may mean the personal sacrifice of our personal pursuits. It may mean sacrifice of our time. It may mean the sacrifice of your business or your profession for the sake of loving our wife like Christ loved the church. Dying to self may mean the personal sacrifice of dying to our flesh and our worldly desires. Not giving in to the lust and desires that are natural, but instead putting to death those things for the sake of purity in marriage and in the relationship. And brothers, this is a high charge for us. The high charge for us is that though our wives aren't perfect, neither are we as the church. And just as Christ saw the potential in his redeemed body, we too serve our wives in a way that she might be sanctified through what? Paul says through the washing of the word. So the first thing we must see, men, is that the submission of our wives to Uh, to us creates a space where we sacrificially lead her to greater depths and intimacy with the Father. We love her sacrificially. Second is a sanctifying love. We're called to the role of being sanctifying love for our wife. So we first of all love her the way Christ loved the church and that creates this responsibility to lead her and our family spiritually. And this is very practical, guys. The very practical implication of this is that we love our lives in a way that helps her grow in her relationship with Christ and into his likeness. Tim Keller says it like this. Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me and I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God and the journey you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and I will say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. We must say to ourselves something like this. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, us denying him and abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. He says, speak to your heart like that. And then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day to love Christ. Love the church. Love your wife is to love in the same way Christ loved the church. Seeing the brokenness that we are, but seeing that that we play a role in her sanctification. It's a very sanctifying love that we have been charged with. And then finally is that our third type of role is our self-love for our wife. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way. Verse 28 says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of the body. We love our wives like our own bodies. This means that we are sensitive to her feelings and needs and we provide for them. We serve our wives. We take care of them. Make sure their needs are met. This is the responsibility that God has given to us. So guys, let's commit ourselves to sacrificial love, to the death of ourselves for our wives, to sanctifying love that they might grow to be more like Christ and to self-love for our wives where we love our own wives like our bodies. Now, let me encourage you if you're single, or let me rephrase it, if you're unmarried, let me encourage you. Guys, there is great danger in allowing yourself to pursue non-believers in relationships. There is great danger in that. Your relationships should not be casual, self-gratifying, self-motivated flings when we are dealing with God's daughter, 
Every relationship you enter runs the risk of leading to love, which may lead to an unequal yoking and a marriage that is out of rhythm with God's design as creator. So prepare yourself now for that wife that if God is so gracious and he has not promised that, he's promised you Jesus, he's not promised you a wife. But if God is so gracious and he brings her to you that you will be prepared to receive and lead her well. Don't think that you can mess with pornography now and engage in lustful thoughts and glances and then cut that switch off when God allows you to enter into marriage. You have to fight that battle now so that you are prepared to lead your wife someday should God bring her to you. Remember, sexual immorality should not even be mentioned among the saints. It's time to man up and begin now living out the design that God created you for. And ladies, present yourselves as the treasure you are. Don't give yourself up to men who push you to do married things outside of marriage for acceptance. Men that will do that to you are boys. And they're spiritually unprepared to lead you the way God designed the groom to lead. So guys and girls, if you don't develop a deep, intimate, loving relationship with Jesus, you will put an incredible amount of pressure on finding the one to the point that you will set your relationship up to be unfulfilling and unsatisfying. And couples, if you aren't married yet, I encourage you. It is a dangerous thing to play marriage. This is a God-ordained gift and union that cannot be carelessly played around with. This is his design. So do you pursue each other? Yes, and you pursue each other to, to edify and grow as individual followers of Jesus, growing in love for him, which will lead to growing in love for each other, so that then you are prepared and have the foundation for covenant marriage to exemplify to the world the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul ends this encouragement to the body with verses 32 and 33. And he says, this mystery is profound. And he says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It is indeed a profound mystery that this broken, sinful relationship at its core can present a picture to the world of our understanding of the gospel of Jesus. So how do I know that marriage exists more for God than it does for you? Because when properly lived out by the design of the creator, marriage is to show the world a picture of the gospel of Jesus. They should be able to look at our marriage and be able to see, when I, I see him leading and loving his wife so well, I get a glimpse, not a perfect picture, it's sinful and broken and definitely a platform to be able to show the grace that is needed. But it gives a picture. You should be able to look and say, okay, I get a glimpse of what it looks like for Christ to love his church. And if it's anything like this, man, he loves us so deeply. And, and to be able to look at a wife and say, man, I, I can see a glimpse of what it looks like for me as the church to follow the lead of Jesus in my life. So Paul says, I am saying this profound mystery of marriage refers to Christ and his church. So let, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Tim Keller says, going further in the quote I read earlier, he says, the reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel which is painful and yet wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth is sentimentality. 
It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. So we are called that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to approach our marriages in such a way that God is glorified and the world can peer into our relationship and see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. So my prayer for us this morning, I paint that picture, but I understand the reality of that. I understand the reality that we have, we've often fail in the roles that God has, has placed before us. But also my encouragement this morning is that even though we fail, it does not give us the place to redesign because apparently the design didn't work. The design is set. It causes us to press in, to trust on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, to grow into his likeness so that we may then reflect the love of the Father. Our marriage, it's in the middle of sanctification just like our own lives are. So my prayer this morning is that hopefully you, if you're married, you will be encouraged to see how am I living out my role? How am I encouraging my spouse to live out their God-given role? This is not a, you live this role so it'll go well with me. This is a, let's live our roles together so the Father might be glorified in us. If you're single, that you will pursue a marriage like that. Trusting that you do not need a marriage to satisfy you. It won't. Only Jesus can play that role and that you will press into your relationship with Christ and allow him to transform your heart so that it then, if he brings you together with someone, it'll be centered on him and it'll be a perfect union to reflect the glory of the Father. So may we hear the the design of the creator and may we love and covenant together in a way that through his design will glorify him. Let's pray.